Happy Sabbath. I, I know you look very relaxed, and my fear is you're going to sleep on me. Yeah, you look really, really relaxed. Sister Don, we're going to do something after uh, a few talk here. We're going to sing first stanza of 529. Yeah, so they, we, they can all stand, then we get into the message. But right now, I just want to say we extend our, our sympathy to the Ewing family. We lost Brother Eric, and that was on Wednesday. And that message came in there and say, Brother Eric, Ewing is resting in the Lord. If you would like to extend, if you would like to attend the memorial service here, is the info so you can plan accordingly. He will be uh, funeralized uh, on June 17th, June the 17th. Brother Ewing will be uh, funeralized at 11 a.m. at William Funeral Home, 1600 Garland Avenue, Garland, Texas. We're reading today our lesson coming from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 26. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, now, our Heavenly Father, as I speak into your people, once again, I'm asking once again, please just hide me behind your cross that those who will hear and see this message on today will see thee and not me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, O oh Lord, be acceptable in thy sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Sister Don, let's wake them up, then we go into the message. Uh, 529, Brother Wilton, first stanza, 529, uh, just the first stanza, and chorus, and we get into the message. Let's all stand, let's check it a little bit. It's been a long time while we sit. Under his wings I'm safely abiding Though the night depends and tempests are wild Still I can trust him, I know he will keep me He has redeemed me and I am his under his wings, under his wings, the fumbling can sever. Under his wing, my soul shall abide, safely abide. Forever. Let's be seated. Thank you so much. I want to talk to you uh, today about God's school. I just thought it's time for graduation, but there is another school that we also have to graduate from. 
I want to talk to you today about that school, which is a sacred school, and it goes on uh, not only while you are here, but through the years that will stretch out in front of you. In God's school, uh, that curriculum uh, never has a vacation. Uh, it was uh, Alan uh, Redpath, of, uh, a pastor of Moody Church up in Chicago. Uh, he has a favorite quote. Uh, I can't remember what he was saying. However, I remember and will never forget one statement he said. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and crushes him. God has a school, and it's a sacred school of brokenness. Where we learn what the Lord revealed to Paul uh, as he was writing somewhere in Macedonia, that second letter to the Corinthians, that my grace is sufficient my strength is perfected in your weakness. Now the problem comes in this school that God conducts in dealing with us because uh, most of us do not really truly believe that truth. Uh, we run from crushing. We resist. Have you ever been brought to your knees in, in agony? Your insides coming out, sure that you, you are in the throes of your ultimate destruction. How many times have you uh, felt like you were coming completely undone? Not only to realize down the road that your shell was only cracking. So... Uh, it was cracking so that uh, the greatest expression of your true nature could be pour forth. How often have the cracks in your facade, uh, in your best laid plans, or uh, even your heart shed light on the deepest and most neglected parts of your being? Have you uh, discovered that even in the worst of times, uh, you feel as if you are broken, but yet there is yet more to this story? There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that is a saying from Leonard Cohen. Now, as an elder, I hear and witness uh, uh, and here, pastors as well, uh, and uh, I hold space for countless stories uh, of despair uh, giving way to hope. Grief uh, opening or uh, to healing, loss making uh, space for abundant gain. People come to us as elders or pastors, and, and we go to them in uh, in, in some of the most vulnerable moments of their lives, often they are grappling with illness, relationship troubles, mental health issues, financial crises, or even death. I've heard countless times uh, 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 people saying, I, I don't know how I'm going to go through this. 
or I will never be the same again. These are achingly true statements. When we are swimming through an uh, ocean of grief, it is hard to imagine that we will reach a new show uh, where we may find a version of ourselves. The new version, though, not the same as the one we left behind. It's beautiful and it's, 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 it's precious. When we are broken, or when we are being broken, uh, uh, open, growth looks like destruction. It is difficult to believe there is more to this story. Now, for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its inside comes out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it will look like complete destruction. And if you have been through some of it already, and I know if you have been in the Lord for a very long time, you have already begun this school. You have already begun this school, uh, then you know pretty much what I'm going to say. God seems to take delight in cutting his servants down to size. So that in that spirit of genuine and true weakness, brokenness, and humility, he is able to use us and literally minister to others through us. I want to talk about that. God's desire is to remove from us all of the crutches that we have learned to lean on to get through the schooling of the past or to get through trials, or to get through impossibilities. God's desire, friends, is to remove all crutches but himself. His plan is to force us to relying on the flesh so that we might start relying on the spirit. It's an intriguing study to see how God took many of his servants through these who were mentioned in the scriptures. The story begins uh, in this man's life, actually, before he ever was made aware that he would be used of God in any way. He was simply the youngest in a family of eight boys. And being the youngest, it's doubtful that he ever thought of being a leader or ever entered his mind. He kept his father's ship. He was faithful at that. For all we know, he did not spend all his nights under the roof of Jesse's home. But perhaps he lived in the field and learned how to handle himself very well. Prior to anything significant, Happening to him, a king was ruling who had proven himself an unfaithful monarch even though he was the king of Israel. Not one, not two, but the third significant failure 
a prophet named Samuel, older than the king, uh, arrived on the scene and confronted the man with the truth that came directly from God through the prophet. You have disqualified yourself from sustaining the role of king over my people. And I'm referring to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 15, verse 26. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to that, to that chapter 15, verse 26. And then we'll skip a couple verses here into the story of David and the unique way uh, God used Saul in David's life. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, remember Saul here is the king, the first king, human king of people of the Hebrews. Samuel said to Saul, I will, uh, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Now please observe, observe, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It's a very clear and obvious statement you are through. The hand of blessing lifts off you. As Samuel turned to go, and Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Not today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. I don't know if you have seen that before. It sort of struck me in a surprising way, those last few words, he is better than you. That's a hard thing to hear. Now, what is interesting and intriguing to me is the exit strategy that God uses. Normally, in employment, if you will, when an individual has been disqualified or uh, uh, disqualified or himself or, or herself from a position, uh, it kind of it falls the responsibility of the one to whom he or she answers to tell them. Usually they are, uh, they are through in a fairly quick period of time. If not, that, that, that very day, uh, depending on the reason. But it is clear that he is not the one. It is clear that the Lord has removed the authority from him. It is clear that today it is over. But what isn't stated in the plan God has in mind, think of it, Saul remains king for an undetermined number of years, probably more like 12 or 13 years after you've been disqualified. You still stay in the office for 13 years. Think of it. He knows that there will be, now Saul knows there will be, he knows there will be another better than him coming. He's already insecure, feeling guilty, ashamed, as he should have failed. 
In fact, it wasn't felt before. The last words of chapter 15, look at that last sentence. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, you, 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 you hate to think those words will be, uh, would, would ever have your name in them. Haunting thought. The Lord regretted that Saul had ever been appointed king. Now let's, let's, let's back away for a moment and let's remember the plan. Saul isn't the man. There will be a replacement. And all of this has happened without David's knowledge. David is simply keeping his father's ship. He is in his mid-teen years, and the next chap chapter picks up the story as Samuel is on a search for the successor. You remember it. You have probably read it, right? He looks at all seven of the sons and asks, is this all? And Jesse says, yeah, I got one more. One more, boy. My last born son, sorry, I, I, I forgot, but he's too young. So I, I, I know how that feels. You know, last borns, most of the times, they never make any decisions. Verse 12 of chapter 16, uh, he sent and brought him in. Now somebody has been sent to go get David, right? He sent and brought him in. And this is the first description of David. He was ruddy with beautiful eyes a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he, he is he. Imagine you're just a shepherd boy. You don't know anything. You don't even know what's going on. And you arrive, and somebody goes, This is he. Now, and I know what, uh, what comes before, right? David doesn't know anything. He's too sweaty from being out in the field. He has no idea who the old man is standing there with a flask of oil in his hands. And the next thing he noticed, there's warm, there's warm oil running down his neck and words are said like, anoint him for this is he. And that's not all that, that happened. We read in the next verse, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. From that day forward, Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, this is where the drama becomes, right? Samuel arose, went to Ramah. He arose and went to Ramah. Task completed. The rest will leave it in the hands of the Lord. Now, that's how they did it back then. Not, our, not these days anymore. Now here, he's been anointed the king. Who? David. Really? Is he king? Yes, he is now the king elect. No coronation service. David goes back with his ship. You are already a king, and you still go to the, back to the field. I told you before, Saul was to stay in the office after being disqualified for another 12 to 13 years. So the young shepherd boy does not know what God is doing, but at this point he's already ordained. He is the king, but the king has to go back to the ship. 
So here he doesn't, uh, David goes back with his sheep. He doesn't run downtown. You know, if anybody anoint me to be a king, I'll be running, I'll, I'll run, I'll go downtown Dallas and begin to look for my regalia, my suit for the office, right? And I want those crowns. I want a better crown, not the same as the king before, right? I need to make a statement. You understand? So he doesn't run downtown and try on crowns. It never dawns on him that there will be any time factor. I'm sure much of it wasn't really that clear to him. You will have moments, you, no, you and I, you and I, you will have moments in your life where there will be such surprises that it will sort of bypass you without your, your, realization, your realization of the significance of that particular moment. He is going to be the king. Saul knows nothing of this. You see, the Bible is so sweet because these are two different scenes. These are scenes altogether separate from each other as God is moving in significant ways in the life of these who will be in the places of leadership. So just as he's moving in your heart and, 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 and mind and, and he will continue to move you in one way, like Sister Sonia, she's about to move in another direction. Uh, you move you and another, you and yet another, me and another, him and another, and her and another. God will continue to move us around. God operates like that, my friends. He is not obligated to communicate to anyone else what his plans is, even though he may plan to use one of us in the other's life. We received the Fredericks here. We never knew that God was also sending another family to cheer us up. And how uh, much I enjoy just to listen and get blessed. And I always say, God is just doing his thing. We don't know how all of that weaves together, but it bundles together into a perfect plan. In this case, into a heartbreaking time of preparation. Because just as the Spirit of God comes upon David, verse 13, a spirit of evil comes on Saul, on Saul and terrorizes him. Terrorizes him. Saul is never the same again. He changes. Now, in the study Bible I was using, there's a man called Charles Ryrie. In the study Bible, he says, the evil spirit was used by God as the instrument of judgment on Saul, resulting in a mental disturbance bordering on madness so now the king is not only threatened with a thought that one better than him will be taking the throne. Never told when, just told it's over. He was disqualified. He doesn't know his successor, but we already know he's got this evil spirit that terrorizes him now. He's super angry. So he's now a lamb duck, 
serving in capacity that has no declared ending. Not realizing who the next person will be. And here is David who's been keeping sheep most of his life. Hearing words that seem so strange from a prophet he did never know. And to model things even further, Saul now becomes mentally disturbed. Before I go any further, just in, ad in addition here, if you have ever served along someone struggling with mental illness or emotional illness, you don't need any further explanation. If you haven't, you, 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 you can't imagine the, the, the madness that accompanies the actions and the reactions. In fact, we will skip over the great chapter, chapter 17, where David kills the giant and the folk song is written. Mrs. White on page uh, Patrick and Prophets, page 650, she talks about this. So has, has, has slain his thousand, David his ten thousands. And now Saul really is troubled by jealousy and envy. Here is the young upstart of a shepherd who's killed a giant that Saul wasn't courageous enough to take on. And the Bible, and the, uh, and, and the people in the Bible, the, the people are loving David. People are loving David. This young hero of the land. Verse 8 of chapter 18, if you will, go there. Begins with the process of brokenness in David's life. Watch verse 18, chapter 18, verse 8. Saul became very angry. The, the, the saying displeased him. They have ascribed to David 10,000. That's what Sister White says. It's in the Bible anyway. They have ascribed uh, to David 10,000. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. What does that mean to you? You, sitting right there, you will work with people who compare. And they will see you as a threat. They will be suspicious of you. Your giftedness will work against you. Especially if you are capable uh, in areas where they are not. And, and, and they hold a superior position. I think you got the picture. What more can he have but the kingdom? Remember, it's in the back of Saul's mind. The one statement he didn't want anybody to know, but he is living with it. How do I know? Look at verse 10 of chapter 18. Look at the verb, in the middle of the verb. He revved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand. Verse 11, Saul hurled a spear at him. Remarkable. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Verse 13, Saul removed him from his presence. Verse 15, he dreaded him. Saul is becoming a curse. He is paranoid, he is suspicious, he is angry, he is unable to sleep, he is raving. Now, David, what is he doing now? 
David is dodging spears more than once. I took time to mark my Bible in these three chapters. He even plans to give David one of his daughters. Can you imagine? Your enemy wants to give you a wife, but this wife is one of, your, of, of his daughters. So Saul plans to give David one of his daughters. Before you get impressed with that, this is a bad woman. He's going to give to David. Verse 21, you believe me, verse 21. Saul thought I'll give her, Saul thought I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. Did you see that? That's what your animal will do. And that the hand, he even wished, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. I thought we belong to the same country, right? Even when two soldiers are having an argument, they are all in the United States Army, right? We serve the country first, then personal issues later. But this soul is now ready. He's wishing bad to David, even the enemies of Israel, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Uh, look, he is even hoping the enemies of Israel will wipe David. And if he, and if he doesn't, at least his new wife will make his life miserable enough to want to take it. You go to verse 22, speak to David secretly. Who is this? Now this, there's a secret now going on here. So now there's a secret. And verse 25, so planned to make David fall by the hand of the, Philist of the Philistines. Verse 29, so was even more afraid of David. So was David's enemy continually. Maybe you haven't lived long enough to, uh, to have an enemy like that. Thank God if you have never known such a thing. Some enemies track you and stalk you. They hit you whether you are there or not. Their, their goal is to make your life miserable. Their goal is to ruin or weaken you or your ministry. Their hope is to put you down and watch you fall and deceptively maneuver and manipulate things to make sure that happens. This is Saul in David's life. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Now it's coming out. He used to hide this, but now it's becoming very public that he wants his life. How about that? Talk about being distracted. He's now telling his boy, who? Jonathan, the son of Saul. And Jonathan happened to be the best friend of David ever. He's now telling his boy, you make sure there's a hitman that finishes him off. Verse 9 tells a story of another spear. Verse 10 says, chapter 19, verse 9, another spear. Verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. Saul sent messages to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death. What am I doing, friends? Have you ever been to the doctor? And you're like, oh, my tummy hurts right here. 
And the doctor says, show me. Where? Right on this side. And he presses that side. And then you say, oh, no, it hurts. But guess what? They never back off. They'll press again. Or maybe they push harder. Even when you say it, it hurts. And that's what Saul is doing to David. He doesn't know what to do anymore. Now, he is going to get David out of his life. What David can easily forget uh, is that Saul is the two, I repeat, Saul is the two being used by God to prepare him to become a better king. So that he will not be a soul replacing Saul. Or in other words, a bad man replacing another bad man. So God used all this experience to humble him, to humble David. Now, I read a book, a very interesting book. I'll tell you the name of it, and you can Google it and read it. You can find it on, uh, 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 is it Kindred or Kinda, where you read on soft uh, copy or whatever it is, electronic copy. The book, A Tale of Three Kings, written by a man named Gene Edwards. And uh, I don't know if you've read it, but I hope you do. It's a study of brokenness. Listen to a few excerpts. God is a university. It's a small school, fewer in row, just a few in row. Even fewer graduate, very, very few indeed. God has this school because he does not have broken men and women. Instead, he has several other types. He has those who claim to be God's authority and are not broken. He has those who claim to be broken and ain't broken. And then there are those who are God's authority who are mad and unbroken. And he has uh, gratefully a mixture of everything in between. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students because all who are in this school must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler, don't miss this, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks to meet out the pain. David had a question. This man continues to write, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Does it not seem odd to you that David did not know the answer to this question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. Why you pick up the spear and you throw it right back? When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it right out of the wall and throw it back. Absolutely, everyone else does that. You can be sure 
And in doing the small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. You are courageous. You stand for the right. You boldly stand against the wrong. You are tough, can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of the faith, the keeper of the flame. You are the detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these attributes then combined to prove that you are also a candidate for kingship. Perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There is also a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm. And most assuredly, by then, quite murdered. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible individual and crushes him. Has spears thrown at him, has people say things about him that are not true, brings out his life, souls, and other individuals who team up together to finish you off. I'm moved with a line in verse 3, chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 3. The last part of it, look at chapter 20, verse 3. There is hardly a step between me and death. And I think some of you who are in church today or home understand this line. I don't know that I am. I have come to that place where there was just a step between me and death. There have been days when I would wish for death. I was, it was so hard. But David means it literally. In fact, it, it gets so bad. It gets so bad if you can believe it in that final when it's clear that Jonathan, Jonathan, the son of Saul, says to David, my daddy is going to kill you. Go. And David runs and makes his existence in the caves of Engedi. If you have never gone, if you've never been to Israel, be sure that someday uh, when you go there, remember you can visit the Engedi caves. He probably showered in the waterfalls on the hillside. Uh, he lived his life for years in caves uh, and dens. Uh, this is the king elect. This is the man who remembers the oil coming down the back of his neck, living in a cave for years. And so plans a way to finish him off. So you know where he winds up. Look at the next verse. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech. The priest of Ahimelech came, trembling to meet him, said to him, why are you alone, no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has commissioned me with the matter, and he has said to me, let no one know anything about this matter in which I'm sending you and with which I have commissioned you. Now I have directed the young man to a certain place, verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Geth. Geth? Guess who was from Geth? Goliath. This is crazy here. 
it's almost, it's almost like a fugitive runs into a police headquarters. And they are busy looking for him everywhere else. What is this? The people of Gath found out that the giant killer is now among them. I'm just cutting it short. They don't, uh, they don't know anything about the spear throwing. They don't know anything about the oil that uh, has gone down his neck. They don't know anything about the plan of God. Uh, all they know is they have got this wild man in there. And look at what happens to David. It's just incredible. Verse 13 of chapter 20. He disguised his sanity before them. David acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. He's at the bottom of his life. This is our hero. Scrambling, scratching the doors near the king of God's palace. Somebody said, there's somebody that we did like to bring you, O king. And the king of God says, chapter, uh, verse 15 is very interesting. The king says, do I like madman that you had brought this one to act this madman in my presence? I got enough nuts here. I don't need, I don't need to bring another one to me. Here's the whole point, friends, as time is gone. It is all designed to take away every crutch. He probably couldn't even name his brother's names at this point. Uh, maybe his daddy, uh, his father, is dead. For all he knows, Jonathan has forgotten him. He is all alone, cave, cave dwelling, does that to you. Your mind plays tricks on you. Every crutch being removed. Why? Because it is God's school to break you down. When he wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and crushes them. One good thing about all this time is perhaps the Psalms David wrote when he was in the caves. Psalms 35. I love it. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Notice here, where he takes the fight, he, he looks up, contend with those who contend with me, Psalms 54. This is a masquil of David when the Zyphats came and said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? And David says in Psalms 54, uh, save me, O God, by your name, vindicate me by your power. David is not out with somebody defending him. He is all alone. He said, Lord, you, don't, you do that for me. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Look at chapter 55, uh, Psalms 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my suffocation. In the middle of verse 2, I'm restless in my complaint. I am surely distracted. Of course he was. My heart is in anguish with me and the terrors of death and fallen, had fallen upon me. Psalms 142. This is a masquerade of David when he was in the cave. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed with, within me, you knew my path in the way where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. 
Look to the right and see, for there's no one who regards me. There's no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. That's an honest prayer. As I close to you, my friends, in 2017, I lost my father and had to fly back home to Zimbabwe to bury him. While preparing for that journey, I remember driving around the freeways of Dallas in grief of that loss. All the way through the day for hours, I, uh, as I drove, I just screamed and I poured out my soul to God. I said things, uh, I said things that I'll never admit to anyone else. And I got back into my driveway and I was just dripping wet and I turned my car off and the thought hit me. The thought just hit me that the Lord can handle all of that. He will never tell anybody. And that's the kind of prayer that David here is recording here. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me. Just about the time he thinks it can't go any further, Saul dies. Not once does David attempt to throw a spear at Saul. Not once does he retaliate. Isn't that great? He was only 30 years old. How did he get this maturity? Because he graduated from the school of brokenness. This is a lesson to learn how to handle your problems, our challenges, the pain in our lives can, can, can cause us dire consequences. Don't miss the diagnosis. Don't miss the handle here. Your pain is real. However, don't let pain drive you too crazy or to a crazy place all you need to do is you take it to Jesus to God be the glory great things is done let's bow our heads as we pray Father we are so thankful thank you for your classroom work in this school of brokenness where we learn the one we study never had any chance to fight back. He could have done it, however, uh, he always seek you to fight his battles. May we learn from him that we cannot fight alone. Uh, we invite you in our lives and you fight our battles that we know and, th and those battles that we don't even know. Be our God, we thank you for this school as you mold us uh, in this school. Uh, we just pray that the Holy Spirit will continue uh, to abide. And we also know we are under your wings. We are sheltered and protected. And no harm can ever come to us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.